Welcome to Women in B2B Marketing, a show where CMOs, VPs of marketing, and all strong women leaders in B2B discuss their top tactics, strategies, and tips for building high-performing teams, leveraging trends, and ultimately rocking their marketing careers. Made by and for women, insightful for all. I'm your host and 15-year B2B marketer, Jane Sarah. Let's dive in. Welcome to a special guest today. We have Kestrel Lemon, who is here for with us today, the senior strategist at Seguno Software. And uh, disclaimer, we were former colleagues too at, at uh, Tenuity back in the agency world. So it's great to reconnect with you, Kestrel. Welcome to Women in B2B Marketing. Thank you so much, Jane. I'm so happy to be here. So good to see you again. And let's see, let's dive into things. I know we were just chatting about a few topics I'm so excited to dive into around email marketing. To me, you are the queen of email marketing. I think (laughs) of you when I think email. Let's take a step back first and just talk about how you got into marketing and B2B overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. Because when I first started out, I actually graduated with an art degree in ceramics. And (laughs) yeah. So it took me a while to realize that I didn't want to work in the art world. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a don't meet your heroes kind of situation. It's better maybe for me to just be able to enjoy artwork and the art world and maybe privately be a part of it, but not as my bread and butter. So the thing that I loved about the different roles that I had with nonprofit and for-profit arts organizations was the marketing. Like that's probably 2008, 2009. And that's when social media was starting to really kick off. Blogging was in full swing and email and I was doing email. And so these were some of the basics that I was like, I like this and I think I'm good at it. And so I got a role as your generalist marketing grunt at a B2B marketing organization. And there I learned the ropes real quick As far as, I mean, first day I was sending out emails because it was a kind of a learn on the job kind of place, which was great. So did email marketing, SEO, PPC, social media, blogging, did the whole, did the gamut, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like thrilled, loved it. Had a great boss too. So, So that was great. But then an opportunity to become a professional services marketing strategist at Bronto software came up and we had been using Bronto. So I knew how to use the platform and I knew some basics with email marketing, but I loved the culture at Bronto. They were so cool. Yeah. And the people who worked there seemed so interesting. So I became a marketing strategist over at Bronto. And that role was really to be a consultant with a list of clients and to help them understand email marketing best practices, put those into use, and then also how those related back to the Bronto application itself. And Bronto, for people who don't know, this was an email service provider. It's fun to be in, it's funny to be in love with a piece of software, like to truly love a piece of software. But myself and others helped, of course, contribute to that software and build it as an email service provider. Yeah, Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I, I was a spokesperson for it. I held clients, put a lot of like blood, sweat and tears. And and many people did too, you know, yeah. a great group of people. And being in that role was, you know, part of it was being in the application itself and really understanding software and working with engineers and understanding like, why does it work this way? Like what is send time optimization? How does it work? You know, like, is this real? And then another part of it was 
being a professional services member and accounting for billable hours. Mm. I got the chance to then move overseas and start up being a founding member of the London office for Bronto. That's amazing. It was. It was just an incredible education. We had a great group of people there that I still keep in contact with. Some of them are still my best friends. Like the people that I met in London are, are still some of my best friends. And that was quite the education because my when you are at a startup or you're a founding member at a remote location, you have the opportunity to be incredibly entrepreneurial. And so you can help form the office culture and you can work with other teams in ways that you normally wouldn't. So I helped with sales enablement, was on more sales calls. I was a spokesperson for the company. So I would go out to these big events and speak on behalf of the company. But then I was also, hey, in a pinch, I needed to do trainings for, hey, we don't have anybody in this time zone. Can you do it? Yep, I can definitely do it. Hey, Kestrel, would you mind? Da, 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 da. Yeah, of course yeah. I can do that. No wonder this was in your blood. <laughs> it's like they you're made into a fangirl because it's you're twenty four seven just yeah. in it. Yeah, and I will say because I've gone on to work with other email service providers, of course, like yeah. plenty in in the B two B space, Marketo and HubSpot, and that intimacy with Bronto has helped me understand how other email service providers have to work. But I don't know if I will ever get, unless I go work for Marketo or HubSpot, I don't know if I'll ever get that intimacy where like I, like in Bronto, I could really do anything. Like I had superpowers and a part of me just like, just wishes with any SaaS product that I could just like get those superpowers back. Like Uh, I could just (laughs) access that. What Um, company purchased Bronto again? Who acquired them? Yeah. So they were purchased by NetSuite and then NetSuite NetSuite. was purchased by Oracle. Ah, okay. Yeah. And Bronto is, and for those of you out there who know this, Bronto is no longer there. Uh, Oracle retired it as a platform, so it's no longer there. And other platforms like Klaviyo have been able to fill that void and come in and be this huge email service provider. Yeah. Which is interesting because this kind of brings us to, and you can get into your current role a bit, but we were discussing beforehand how you are an email expert really in B2B and B2C. Because you do both, right? You have handled at several of your positions, the B2B marketing on behalf of your company. And you've helped the clients with their B2C marketing efforts. Mm -hmm. So you you must know a variety of different ESPs and of course, different strategies. So I know we touched on this a little bit. I'd love for you to share how that differs if it does at all B2B email marketing versus B2C email marketing. Right. Yeah. And something that, that comes up Funnily enough, kind of in my own mind, I kind of think about that a lot because yes, I was at Tenuity, an agency B2B and ran all of their email marketing. However, I still wanted to be very close to what was going on in the B2C world because our customer's main pain point was around B2C. So it was very helpful to still be around that in that world. And then in my current position at Saguno, which is an email service provider for Shopify merchants. So it's an app in the Shopify store and it's an excellent email service provider for those Shopify merchants. I am both running the B2B marketing within Saguno and run that that B2B email marketing, but then I am also coming up in, in that content subject matter expert in the B2B, in B2C space and developing out like courses 
for Shopify merchants to be able to grow their list or do marketing automation or whatever the case may be, put together newsletters, you know, just at a, at a basic level, what makes a good newsletter? Yeah. So there are some rules like, hey, we're all marketing humans, <laughs> I think, of course, <laughs> right? And there's some B2B price points and product type products or service types that are much closer to B2C than standard B2B might be. But I would say in general, standard B2B world is that there's a higher price point with a longer sales cycle. Mm -hmm. And normally you as the buyer might not have a credit card that you can just charge. Even if you really want the thing, you can't purchase it until you convince a group of people or a boss that we should sign off on this and buy it. Whereas in your personal life, you might have a partner that you have to be beholden to, but for the most part, you can kind of buy things as you want to buy them when you want to buy them. Yeah. Especially with buy now, pay later. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Right. Danger, danger zone. So there are some differences. And then I would say there's also kind of the branding element. So in some cases in the B2B world, you really want to build yourself as this bigger than life brand and that this is a very serious decision and that whatever you're purchasing isn't simple. It's tough. And that's why you need to pay us. And so it's in their best interest to make it seem like this decision is a really, really big deal. And in B2C marketing, oftentimes we are trying to just get people to purchase in that moment right away as that's why we yeah. set up senses of urgency of like, Hey, purchase by blah, 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 and get 10% off. And why flash sales work so well in B2C marketing, right? Because people are like, Ooh, it's happening a limited time. I got to do it. Whereas that just will not, that typically, typically that just won't really work in the same way in the B2B space. So there are differences, but there are a lot of similarities. Like you want your emails to look good. You want to send good emails, good looking emails. Yeah. <laughs> you want people to understand what those emails, what the point of those emails are, and they can get to the call to action really easily and that they have a, a generally positive outlook on how your email looked or that, you know, you're getting your point across. Mm -hmm. So those things are, are similar. And then from a metric standpoint, you're going to be looking at, did people click? and convert, but the conversion might just be a different thing. So a conversion in the B2B space might be getting them one step farther down that funnel in the B2C space. It could be that the conversion is the actual in purchase. Mm -hmm. Now I do understand in the B2C space, we've got some longer buying cycles for certain things and like it Luxury needs to be treated. Things, yeah. 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 So those metrics end up being eh, same, same, but different. Yeah. Same, same, but different. Curious if you can settle a long-standing debate, I think for a lot of B2B marketers, because I think I know the answer on the B2C side, but in the B2B world, plain text versus visual email, <laughs> which one works better? Mm, both. <laughs> <laughs> do both. I feel like it was going to be an answer of it depends, yeah. right? <laughs> well, it does depend, but do yeah. both. <laughs> yeah. They both, just like you don't wear the same shirt and pants every day, you've got different outfits for different occasions you go to. Yeah. You do different emails for different occasions you got going on. Yeah. If you have just released this really awesome white paper guide, and it's really cool and you really want to come out and say all these different things that it do. So maybe that's a very visual element, but then potentially you want to follow up with that message 
with a more personalized plain text that says like, hey, look, this just came out. I really think you're going to like it because of X, Y, Z. Maybe you do a little one-two punch. And in the B2, you know, just in the B2B world, if you are working with your sales team and developing those plain text messages with them so that they can kind of follow, they can, they can do drip campaigns that follow up with certain marketing campaigns, then you know that those plain text messages are that are super simple, but really direct sometimes perform way outperform um, some of those more elaborate visual emails, and then literally both. So literally Mm -hmm. having a newsletter style message that has plenty of plain text in it, but has really great little bits of subtle visuals that just make it stand out and look really nice. But it's not like giant image, giant button, giant image, giant button. That makes sense. Do you think we still I know this was an issue many years ago, but I it seems like we may have overcome it. The issue of images being blocked. So just breaking the email, is it still an issue? I don't know. I feel so bad for those people out there that are like on old outlooks and listening yeah. to this. And they're just like, yeah, Jane. Yeah, still an issue, Jane. You you clearly don't have to use outdated for outlook. some of blocks. us. Yeah. You know, some of us. Yeah. And, and I feel- that fancy Gmail. Yeah. And I feel for that, so right? Because I've been a- yeah jobs where you've got to use a platform that doesn't render things correctly, or definitely have had plenty of clients that are a part of old school organizations. Yeah. Especially in the nonprofit space, it's probably more prominent, right? Or like bigger government. Or the luxury market. Like I've had like the top, like the most luxurious client you can think of, the most luxurious brand you can think of. And they were using Lotus Notes. And (laughs) yeah. And that stuff never renders right. So you have a director in France being like, this isn't rendering right. Your emails don't work. They're so angry. And you're like, well, what are you looking at it on? Because we just tested it across 20 different applications and it works fine. We can't replicate the issue. We can't (laughs) replicate. But just because that one decision maker is using... 2003 Lotus Notes, then you're you're at their mercy. So, but that's because I remember this happening (laughs) years ago. Hopefully, it's less now. But I remember having these conversations with people. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you've got to remember your audience. So, let's say that you sell education software to elementary school teachers. I Mm. don't know, but I'm assuming public schools have you on like an Outlook type situation. Maybe not. Yeah. But, or let's say you, a huge segment of your audience is in the government and Mm -hmm. they're required to use stuff that does block images for security reasons. So no, blocked images is definitely still a thing. A really great thing that you can do sometimes in your email service provider, they'll tell you how many people have, are using Mm -hmm. Hotmail or Gmail or whatever. So you can, you can know that. But if you don't have that, then you can see if you can use something like Litmus or email on ACID. And that'll be able to help tell you um, your audience a little bit more. And then you'll be able to say like, okay, 80% of our audience is Gmail. Like we can probably get away with some more images in here then. But I would still recommend kind of a healthy mix just because you (laughs) never, for a few reasons. One, the email, the, um, the email clients like Gmail, they like to know that you're sending a legit message. And if I was a spammer, I would just send everything as an image because I'm trying to fake being some company or whatever. So they want to just be careful. They're going to be careful with that. 
Now, that being said, I know a lot of people are like, well, I get all of these promotional emails and they're always image heavy. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But you got it. Like there's other stuff going on there. They could be a little bit smaller or they could be really large. Like you're not old Navy. So don't try to be old Navy. Like, yeah, yeah. They've got some brand recognition that they can do that, that you just can't do. Yeah. But you still have to look out for images not being enabled depending on your audience. And in the B2B space, I would be more worried about it than in the B2C space. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's where you just have a mix of images and buttons and not image-based buttons, but buttons that are based on tables. Mm. This used to be called bulletproof buttons, but I had somebody tell me that that was not what we should be calling them anymore. And I was like, the well, names change. But a table-based button, text, images, having a mix of that in your message is going to help really future-proof yourself. That's interesting. And what is a, a table-based button? If you can try to describe that to me, just mm-hmm. there's so many different term and not like terminology right in terms for things and then acronyms. Right. It's like, what is this? Is it just because you were saying it's not a basic button that is an image, but something that's either it's and it's not the text that's just hyperlinked so what's table based yeah. yeah so in an image based button if images are turned off the button you can't see the button at all okay it's okay. just gone right in a table based button how they how you code the email is a little box goes around the text and that gotcha. box is normally a different color like bright like green a cell. and yep Okay. And then the text is white. So it looks like a, a green button with white text. And so with images off or on, it's always going to look good. And cool. there's no weird, gr- you're not worried about like resolution. And people normally are just attracted to those table-based buttons a little bit more. They look a little bit more. It's a, it's one of those like subtle eye things, but they just look more legit. And people yeah. like buttons. People like plain text, link hyperlinks too, but people like buttons. And so you want to give people a button, a real clear way to do something in an email because otherwise it's kind of like, well, what was the point? I only have three seconds to dedicate to looking at this. So like, why do I care? Is that something worth testing? Do you think just the simple CTA of text versus image button versus this table-based button? Is that a basic one that's like, of course, oh, we yeah. should test it for your audience? Okay. Oh yeah, T- tested this thousands of times. And Does it always change company to company? So no tried and true rule there would of definitely this always be works? My tried and true, like the one that, okay, so this is what comes when you work with so many clients after a while yeah. is that yeah. you can kind of say some stuff and be like pretty confident, but don't get me wrong. There's going to be people that like are going to be like, no, that's not how it is for us. But for the most part, yeah, people like those buttons. But every now and again, you get a group of people who also really likes just hyperlinked text and they trust Mm -hmm. the hyperlinked text. So it kind of depends on the message layout that you're doing. But if I really want to cover my bases, I'll hyperlink a little part of the text and then have a bulletproof button or a a table-based button. I normally won't do an image-based button unless... We really need to, but the table-based buttons are, are beautiful and gorgeous. And you can, most email service providers allow you to build them into your WYSIWYG really easily. So why wouldn't you use them? Wasn't always the case. And yeah. definitely when working with certain brands where they're like, no, our buttons have to look, they have to be shaped like this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well then it's going to be an image, buddy. Um <laughs> But no, for the most part, people, yeah, people love that button that you put above the fold yeah. in your in your message. That's the thing they're going to normally be attracted to. Yeah. 
Does above the fold, sorry, everything you say sparks a new question for me because email is so fascinating to me. Above the fold, in the now current world of scrolling, does above that the scroll. still matter? Above the yeah, scroll. Yeah, so it would be like okay. above the scroll could potentially yeah. be. And and again, this is where if you, within your email service <laughs> provider, or if you use email on Acid or, or Litmus, you'd be able to see how many people are opening up on desktop versus mobile. So you'd yeah. be able to know like, hey, who do I need to really look good at? And then when you're doing going through your testing, because you should always be testing your email to yourself to kind of be in the, the user's shoes before you send it out. And you can go look at, you can go look at your message and see like, is this, what I scroll, does this look interesting? And there are some companies that have done some really fun things with below the scroll and they'll like have some funny images that make you scroll. Like yeah. it's encouraged to scroll. And because of TikTok or because of Instagram, social media in general, your scrolling is very easy. It's become more and more second nature. And so you're more programmed to kind of do it, to kind of check the full message and then like get out of it. Yeah. But I still would say you want to try to like grab some kind of attention. The yeah. big mistake that I see people making is they're not really treating that real estate in the message as high value. They're like they're putting a huge logo up there or they're putting a lot of like redundant text. Yeah. And that's a mistake, right? Because that's your most valuable real estate. We really want yeah. to entice people to either scroll or to keep looking at the rest of the message. Yeah, interesting. Have you seen anything change now that we have thumb happy people that scroll like the it seems like the top real estate above the scroll is still number one. But is it do you find clients and yourself kind of repeating that at the bottom for people who are just kind of scrolling to the get to the point piece at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So I normally have like a top and a bottom call. To, like, let's, let's just say that the point of the message is a guide. I'll have a primary call to action for the guide at the top and then some additional text that supports it, maybe an additional image, and then another secondary call to action that goes to the guide at the bottom. And typically that top is going to continue to do better. But every now and again, for depending on the offer, depending on kind of what's going on, that bottom one will perform really well also. Yeah. So yeah. So interesting. Typically, there's fewer clicks the farther down the email you go, depending on the engagement mm. of the audience and what you've trained them to yeah. kind of look out for. And so for people who are doing newsletters, where you've got really strong content throughout the whole message, and maybe even you've made sure that you put an extra surprise and delight down at the bottom of the message mm. because you really want to make sure people are reading all the way through. So like yeah. on morning brew, there's like a little quick, there's a little like fun trivia question at the bottom of every message. Yeah. So like it makes you scroll all the way to the bottom. So they've trained that behavior. So you will see maybe some more of those click rates, but um, that might also be a sacrifice to the click rates up at the top too, because people have to decide where they're going to spend their time. Yeah. Talking about length of email, newsletters is an outlier. But aside from newsletters, do you typically recommend to keep emails visual or plain text at a certain length? Or does it really depend on the style? and intent? I think but besides length, you're also dealing with like, how many directions can you pull this audience? Like in my guide example, I'm really trying to get across in an email that we've got a new guide and why it's so great. 
I shouldn't need that long. It's a single call to action, right? Yeah. So I should really be working to make sure that content in there is really, really powerful. It doesn't maybe necessarily need to be super long, but I'm only pulling them in one direction. I'm just pulling them to that guide. And so what I will say about length is that I don't normally want to have more than like three calls to action in like a traditional kind of promotional message. So mm. newsletters aside, right? Yeah. Because you normally have like quite a few in there. And that's just because you're pulling people in a lot of different directions. You kind of want to give them one thing to think about so that they can act on that. Um, whereas if you give them a little too much, they kind of might have a little sensory overload and just be like, nah, this is too, this is too complicated. Again, I'm only going to look at this email for like a matter of seconds. And if it seems like too much work, I'll come back to it later. And then yeah. of course they don't come back to it later. It's a very basic form of decision fatigue, right? If there's yeah. too many, it's like, which one should I, uh, I don't know which to click by the back yeah. button. <laughs> yeah. Hierarchy is really important in emails where we kind of want that inverted triangle up at the top to try to get people to wherever you're trying to go. And I mean, like there's different layouts that work really well with different brands, but normally like if you throw too many tempting things at them, they're going to have a little bit of a whoa and then nothing performs well. And if you are worried that that's what's happening, then A-B test that and see yeah. if you get a higher click rate. And you probably will get like per item, like more clicks on the item that you just single out in the test. And so it's a matter of like, okay, well, do you want to, let's say it's just to make easy math, a hundred clicks. Well, do you want a hundred clicks going three different places or you want a hundred clicks going to mm. one thing? Some would say like, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. They're all engaging. And others would say like, no, I really need people to like, this is the the effort we're going behind this yeah. webinar or this thing. And I really need as much power behind that quickly as possible. Yeah. Really depends on your goals as a company, right? Right. And you touched on earlier to metrics and the metrics, how they're different between B2B and B2C, what you're looking at conversions versus clicks or different levels of, mm -hmm. of conversions. How have you seen email metrics? I mean, we could focus on B2B, but really in general, how have you seen email metrics that you're tracking change over the last few years? Because I know with all the privacy issues mm -hmm. and laws, which we can dive into next, it's impacted open rates, et cetera. I'm curious mm -hmm. if, if it's changed what you look at. Right. So I think people would have said just in general that more recently, don't trust your open rates. That would be kind of a very simple, long story short, don't trust your open rates because Apple is going to register it as an open, whether it was a real human open or not. And then other people will say, well, maybe you should never have trusted open rates because it's just the pixel firing that the message was open and that could be misinterpreted by different email clients anyway. So you never really know if somebody opened or not. Yeah, but for the most part, we all trusted open rates. I mean, yeah, yeah right. And so now considering email or Apple is such a large group of the audience and those are all automatically opening. It's probably going to make your open rates all focacta. Yeah. However, again, if you can go in and see all those Gmail users and see how they're opening. Mm -hmm. And if you do have a large portion of Gmail users that are opening the Gmail app, you could do a little bit of some testing there, but you could maybe say like, oh, well, this did maybe a little bit better than that. Like I would hate to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but in general, and I, and I just say that because I have worked with clients where they have a huge percentage of this group 
And so the, whatever the standard practice is that everybody else is doing, it's like, well, that didn't really apply to them very well. So like, I just, I know that there's that out there. And so you would, uh, like I said, I don't want to throw the the baby out with the bathwater, but in general right now, if you say like, I look at open rates in an email club, everybody, you know, they're all going to laugh at you. <laughs> just, just can you at them. least look at trends for subject line testing? Like, can you understanding that your open rates are skewed themselves? Can you compare like last month going to the same segment? We sent these and these subject lines, but they didn't work. And this really drove a higher open rate. Or is that all skewed? Well, you'd have to take into consideration how many new Apple subscribers yeah. you got. But if you were, like, I think that there are ways around it. Like I don't discount like for our Shopify merchants, our audience and quite a few Shopify merchants use Gmail. That's their bread and butter. And so I'm still looking at those Gmail open rates. Okay. So as long as you segment it out, you can do kind of mini tests within your non-Apple audience. And as long as you're not living and dying by those tests. Yeah. But that you're looking at them more as indicators and less as like, oh man, this got like 1% more. That's it. Everybody, we got to do this thing. You know, like you've got to kind of be a little bit more careful there. And who knows, maybe, I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the future that could, that could change. I think what MPP, the the stuff that came across with Apple should probably have the, the bigger lesson there is like, hey, stuff changes and you need to adapt to those changes. So if you were ride or die, on these like very specific open rates and you were just like, oh man, this is my only KPI, then that's going to change. Things like that are going to continue to change and you need to be able to have kind of a backup. Now, other people always took click rates. So the number of people who clicked, the total number of clicks, click divided by the total number delivered, other people always took that more seriously. And it was more of an indicator of interest and intent, right? Because it wasn't just like an impression, like an open would kind of be because it was more of an an, an action. People were taking a, a pretty serious action. And for some B2B, the click is the conversion. Like that yeah. is, they're all about that click. But relying a little bit more on the click data and the unsubscribe rates. So taking a look at what those unsubscribes yeah. are, understanding what your net loss per month along with what your net gain of subscribers is each month, and then kind of working backwards from there and understanding that really each send costs us this many people. Oh man, it really went up on this newsletter. Ooh, you know, like, yeah. uh, people did not like that. Yeah. That's another indicator of interest. And then I would just go farther down the funnel now. For some people, they they just work within the email and when it, they, they kind of stop at the click and that's it. Like they're, that's their job. And Hey, I get it. And I support you for other people. They're also building that landing page or they're building wherever the email is going to. And so they're going to be able to track farther down the funnel and say like, okay, great. We got a thousand clicks. Fantastic. But look, time on site was 30 seconds and we had a 90% bounce rate. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Oh no. So you do want to continue to, you want to make friends with people who are above the funnel and below the funnel to you and and make sure you have a good relationship so that you can kind of say, well, look, I kind of gave you a thousand people. (laughs) Like what's going on? I didn't, did they convert? Did they sign up for that webinar or did they try to get a quote or not? Attention Um, to that landing page folks. (laughs) Right. Right. So the, depending on how, but I would ultimately as the, the email person, you're going to really want to make sure you understand what a conversion is for you. 
Is it a click? Is it the ultimate, like we got them to sign up for a webinar? Is it that we got them to get a demo, talk to a salesperson, get converted from an MQL to an SQL, and then understanding what that path is and how you directly influence it. And probably there, there might be spots along that that you can't directly influence, but you can give it at least the best go that you can. But being very clear as to what your conversion is as a business person, as a email person is hugely important. Yeah. So it sounds like metrics have kind of stayed the same, but tightened up around conversion focus versus the higher level opens that are a little bit even more airy than they used to be. And then really it it depends on your goal. So just focusing on what your goal is, which is the rule of metrics for any marketing team, right? Is you're focused on what is your goal with this channel or whatever campaign you're pushing and tracking it against that. That's what I would push on my team for sure, because I had a great meeting with a boss years ago where he just was very upfront with me. And he was like, I don't care about open rates. I don't care about click rates. None of that matters to me. I just need to know if it's working or not. (laughs) And so of course, as like the email nerd, I'm going to want to be like, oh, well, turns out that relates back to it. (laughs) Yeah. It turns out that plain text link did work better. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We did get more on that. But ultimately what the business cares about is is conversion. Revenue. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And as a just managing yourself, the better you are with keying into what your boss's KPIs and your boss's boss's KPIs, the more successful you will be in, in your business life. Rule of thumb. This is like the golden rule of marketers, right? To succeed, to align your goals with that of your bosses and your company. Yeah. In yeah. It, no matter what your focus is. Yes. Yeah. I'm because curious. ultimately, if you're asked to report on something, it's in their head, they're kind of like, yada, yada, yada. What yeah. did this do for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So true. I've been in many a conversations, right? When you're focusing on, we had X number of followers this week and X number of no one cares at a high level, as long as it, unless it converts at the end of the day. I'm curious for our listeners. I know whenever I I would love to chat email with you for hours. I feel like I have a million questions. So maybe we'll have a part two. But one thing for our listeners, do you have any kind of low hanging fruit or quick tips that could help improve their emails today? Meaning I know I was at a session I mean, back when I used to go to events in person, hopefully that day comes back now, (laughs) maybe this year. But there was one session I attended where it was like, he provided a list of how words in the subject line have changed and free was now good again. And it used to be taboo and just Mm. things like that. I'm curious, it doesn't have to be subject line related, but if you have any tips that are just tried and true, this helps your email do this or don't do this. Right. So I would say, something that's going to really help you understand the business that'll just help improve your life in general is knowing what those keywords are that trigger your audience, that get them to pay attention, that either really drive home on their pain or speak to the solution you provide that they're really looking for. And you might want to go to your SEO team. You might want to go to your ads team, content team, but really try to figure out what are those keywords. And then your job as a marketer is to distill down that subject line to make sure that those keywords are standing out right away in the inbox and that you're utilizing those keywords within the message and they're easy to read and understand. Again, I think probably the biggest mistake I see is people writing subject lines that are too long, too wordy, don't get to the point. And the message has too much stuff in it, doesn't get to the point, doesn't really represent the solution very well, doesn't really listen to the problem that the 
customer has very well. So maybe they're trying to force a solution onto a customer that where they're like, that's not really my, that doesn't solve a solution for me. That's not a solution for me. That's not my problem. So that is a little bit more like an airy fairy answer, but I would say you want that subject line to be five to seven words. You want to use a keyword within the first three words of that so that no matter how they're looking at the inbox, they're seeing that keyword and they're thinking, oh, that is, that's a thing that, that does bug me. That's a, that's a trigger for me. I really, oh, I want to open that. I love that. It's almost taking, you know, those tools that exist that you probably hate as an actual email marketer focused is um like co-scheduler, the subject line tester, and oh, sure there's yeah. a few others out there. Oh. You almost need to create your own version of that with your own, yeah. like basically having a list of your, these power keywords that you're talking about that you can pull from your SEO or your ads team. I love that idea. And just have this bank and that gives you extra points towards your score of your subject line. So if you make one, yourself knowing what works and what doesn't work for your company. Right, right. Yeah, I'd be super hesitant to use those um yeah, those the subject line subject testers. Line I've testers. I've had I've it's like a game, but sometimes we'll we'll like put in really bad subject lines, like stuff that'll definitely get you like spam complaints or not spam complaints, but get you marked as spam. And we'll have it come out with like, oh that was a hundred percent score. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so you just got you That's gotta good be to know. Yeah, just at the end of the day, you want brevity, you want to be concise, you want to use those action words, you want to use those keywords that your audience really cares about. And that roots back to they have a pain point, they have a problem, and you have a solution for that. Whether that's like they're quick because they're short on time, whether in the B2C space, it's you provide something warm because they are cold. Like you're, you're trying to put kind of like a socket and, um, whatever goes in a socket. What, you know what I mean? Like peanut butter and jelly. Like you're trying to have the solution and the problem be lock and stuff. Yeah. Be lockstep together. Yeah. Well, you mentioned you put in like kind of as a game with your teams, just spammy words and things you know that would get you flagged. Can you share a couple of those with us knowing what words would instantly send your email to spam? You know, anything to do with pharmaceuticals Uh, (laughs) is one of those things. So anything with like Viagra or pharmaceutical or (laughs) pill name. That makes sense. Anything like that is is normally there's going to be different. This will change because the spammers are quite sophisticated and their spam techniques will change. So it could be like right now, I think it's like a free Yeti backpack is a big, I don't know if you've gotten these, but I've gotten uh, many of them. There's a lot of spam going around for free Yeti backpacks. Um, And so I'm sure Google is kind of like, ooh, it's free Yeti backpack. Looks like, (laughs) what's that For a Yeti. They can't (laughs) use their own terms. (laughs) Well, and there's so much more that goes into it. And you've got to remember that there's, spam with a capital S and there's spam with a lowercase S. So in my mind, Kestrel's making this up in her mind, but spam with a capital S is, this is legitimate predatory spam. It is the Nigerian prince. It is somebody trying to trick you Yeah. And you should not click. And these are reasons why we have to have security number. Yes. (laughs) These are, this is why we have to have cybersecurity talks every year at your company because these messages, that is spam. And then you have lowercase spam. And that is just what humans deem as an unimportant message that they don't feel they should be getting. And they just hit mark as spam or they just hit unsubscribe or they, you know, they delete it and they just call it kind of spam. And that's really because unfortunately, an email marketer wasn't following best practices 
and has now contributed to why people are like, I get so much spam. Yeah. Any email marketer will tell you that family reunions are always bittersweet, especially if the family knows what you do, because you'll have your uncle. Why do I get and my uncle doesn't sound like that at all, that not even remotely yeah. close to my uncle's house, but it's your fault. You, yeah. you let them spam us. Like, so true. Right now, I, I work at Just Do Know, a conversion optimization yeah. platform. And one piece of our platform is on-site pop-ups, right? For messaging, for very tailored messaging. But of course, when you say this to your parents or your uncle or anything, right away, they're like, I got that on my computer the other day. All of these boxes started popping up all over the place. I was like, no, no, dad, you got spammed. You should probably clean your computer now and don't put in any information. Well, where were you? That's what were you what we doing? Do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are you Exactly. <laughs> you go get them a well, Mac for Christmas. Right. Exactly. Oh, they're on Apple. Apple now gets these issues now, right? Mm-hmm. I guess like very tiny for the older generation, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, if um, there's a way, my mom will find it. <laughs> right. Right. It's like, oh, this is this is talking about me. They know where I can find 500 relatives. Let me click. <laughs> so funny. That's I laugh, but that's going to be me in like five years. I'm going to be doing that too. Oh, wait. Yeah. Because the, I mean, you want to stay on top of it because these real spam, capital S spam, it's a booming business. They put a ton of R&D into it. They know what they're doing and it works and they don't have to do much to make it work. So it's, it's a back and forth always between the real spammers and Google. Yeah. And the, well, not Apple, all of them trying to go back and forth on, well, we're going to try this. Oh, well, we'll stop them this way. Well, we're going to try this. We're going to stop them this way. And then uh, legitimate senders kind of get into the crossfires of that. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I'd love to dive into that a little bit is the um, all the different laws and rules and regulations that we have yeah. to follow because of these spammers. And it probably eventually would have happened anyway for the lowercase spam that that sometimes we're judged by. But yeah, which there's so many laws and rules and regulations by country, by area, by industry. What should we and B2B marketing, what should we be following? What's like a number one rule that we should keep in mind? Or what do we need to know high level? Yeah, we have can spam in the US, but then, you know, more recently GDPR and Castle in Canada. And then we've got California came out with their own privacy policy. And then most recently, we've got a, quite a few other states coming out with their own. And I've got a list here it's CPRA, CDPA, the CPA, the UCPA, the CTDPA. Oh my um, gosh. All these different laws that require we don't have enough acronyms in marketing, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and really what a lot of the privacy laws are concerned with is data. So how you're intaking data, processing that data, and then potentially yeah. what, what you're doing with that data. And so from an email perspective, just an email perspective, if you can kind of follow permission-based marketing rules, which is only send to people who are expecting to get a message from you. They know you, they're expecting to kind of get a message from you one way or another, because they signed up, they they interacted with you, they're expecting to get an email. If you can just stay with that, I think that you're going to be a-okay. I think that that will future-proof you enough. If you are going out and buying random lists of people, which I still can't believe happens, but from the random, the random list thing, that's not going to, that's not going to go well. I like to think of email, SMS, messenger as all very intimate forms of communication. 
And you just need to be really careful with those intimate forms of communication to not quote unquote spam someone, lowercase s, spam them because they're going to, they're not going to have patience for it. And the more savvy the user, the less patience they're going to have for that. Now I do want to say, because I guarantee we're going to have somebody listening to this and they're like, ha ha ha, I have a way of doing this. And it has done really great. There are some outlier cases maybe, but I I would just be really cautious about them. And I would, if you do get some data and you want to activate on it, that's going to cost a certain amount of money. Are you going to see that return or would that money be better spent sponsoring something somewhere else or, or doing something? Is that really the best use of that money? Back in the day, you know, like I have worked with clients who are like, oh yeah, just for like $10,000, I can have this list of names. And I'm like, do you know what we could do for $10,000? Like, the um, <laughs> why, yeah. why would you do this? Um, we're not going to see a return on investment. So it used to be that people, I think, were tricked I mean, you could say it in a more sophisticated way, but I'm just going to say it in plain English. I think people were just tricked into buying lists. I think now if you are going to be intentional about some kind of purchase of data, it would need to be for a really specific use case and you better be on it with that use case. You better be like, you better bring your A game because otherwise people are going to be super pleased or you're just not going to make your money back. Yeah. It's a great point. Instead, focus on driving traffic to your site and converting versus the cold. Oh, yeah. Or like you want to do, you want to spend 10 grand. Great. Sponsor a podcast. Sponsor a really great event at an industry thing. Get Mm -hmm. an influencer for your industry and get them to, to talk about your latest webinar. Like use that 10 grand and get some actually like pretty excited people to go through your funnel instead of like a group of people that is mostly now just really doesn't like, doesn't, doesn't like you (laughs) has a bad feeling about you and your brand. Um, And also people aren't, people are becoming more and more savvy. Like, Hey, I didn't give them my email address. Why are they emailing me? Like, Are they like, this could be capital S spam. Oh, danger. True. So interesting. There's just so many, it's, I guess it's out of desperation, right? If you're not hitting numbers and you have certain goals to reach, you're like, okay, I'm going to buy this list (laughs) just out of thinking it's quick. But it, in the end of the day, typically there are always exceptions, right? But typically it doesn't go that way. Yeah. And like, I know that there's a savvy marketer who, and I'm, There are ways you could do things in desperation that would not hurt your reputation and that maybe you could do some cool things with retargeting. And there are things that you can do. You just got to be smart about it because otherwise you're just really not going to get that return on investment. And then you're going to be desperate and in the hole. Good advice. Again, I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours about (laughs) marketing and just keep going deeper. But I want to respect your time. To wrap things up, I want to ask... What's one thing that you would tell your younger marketing self if you could today as you were getting started? Yes. Yeah. So many things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 2020. It's going to be a, going to be a hell of a year. (laughs) Watch out now. (laughs) Buy that real estate. In 2019. Yeah. Early on. (laughs) So I would say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to say two things. One more philosophical thing, slow down, calm your tits. Slow, slow it down, honey. You're going real fast. Like, let's just calm it down. Get into meditation. Just start doing some meditation five minutes a day. It's great. 
just there's a reason probably why you're feeling like you have to go so fast. Let's maybe look at that a little closer. Mm. So that, and then a very practical thing is get your resume in a really easy to update form, something that's just super simple to go update, and then make sure you're updating it very regularly and make sure that you are reporting back on metrics that are resume worthy that you want to then talk to a future employer about so that you can say with confidence, like, oh yeah, I did actually increase list growth by 300% by doing X to X. Write that down as it happens, right? As it happens, it's a good, and that does many things for you. Even if it's not job searching, it forces you to put together those metrics for your boss, which are, hey, that's a good thing. And then you, you know, you're keeping track of things for your future self will be very grateful. Yeah. Even when imposter syndrome starts to creep in, right? You have that win book that you can refer back to. Like, look at all the things I've achieved. I can't be all that bad. Right, (laughs) right, right. And that's another, yeah, that's a, yes, of course. That's another really great thing to do. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Kestrel, for joining us. Where can anybody find you and connect with you if they have questions or just want to chat or pick your brain? Oh, yeah. Just find me on LinkedIn. I think I went back and forth about having like a personal website or not because for a while there having a personal site was like kind of a thing. And yes, but you know, LinkedIn is just easy and you can put a lot of stuff on there. I would love to talk to to anyone if they have any questions and you can just find me Kestrel Lemon on LinkedIn. I'm the only one. It's just me. There's only one Kestrel <laughs> Lemon. Um, so I'll you'll, put a link in show notes to make it easy yes. for everyone. Yes. <laughs> Please do. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I would love to have you on again for an email part two. Mm -hmm. Um, And thank you to all of our listeners for joining. Remember to follow, leave a review, like, share, give all the love to women in B2B marketing, still small and growing. So appreciate everybody listening in. Oh, you know what? I One thing, if you you can even edit this out and wedge it back in there, but if you are really interested in email marketing and you are a lady, we've got, or you identify as a lady, we've got a group called Women of Email and it's a really great group and I can give you the link. You can put it in the show notes, but it's got a really great Facebook page, super active, really supportive, but it's women, women of email. I think it's W-O-E. Yeah. Women of email. And it's just a great, it's a great group. And I, 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 you know, believe strongly in groups. They can be really helpful, especially when you have a very urgent question. So women of email is a great group to be a part of. If you're trying to get more into email marketing, you've got email marketing questions. Thank you. Yeah. Share the link with me. I'll put it in show notes because once you find those rare groups that are active and helpful, it's it's gold. So yeah, yeah, thank you. I'll put that in. Thanks again, Kestrel. Yeah. No, thank you so much, Shane. This was great. This was awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Yeah, you too.